Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and this is part two of Victorio's Treasure. In part one, to recap, a married couple, their names Doc and Ova Noss, while on a camping trip in the Embryo Basin area of New Mexico, according to most sources, discovered a treasure in coin, gold bullion, and jewelry, sitting in a cavern deep within the bowels of a mountain peak which the army had labeled as Victorio's Peak in southwest New Mexico. Legends as to how it got there point back to a renegade monk named Father or Padre LaRue, who, acting on a tip that he heard from a dying soldier in Mexico City, headed north with a small party of faithfuls to start a new colony of believers and find gold. According to legend, they found a rich gold vein deep within Victorio's Peak and smelted it for three years. The result? thousands of 40-pound and larger gold bars. Indians had also located the sub-mountain caverns, and Indian cultures had existed in the Umbrio Basin for the past eight to 10,000 years. But one band of renegade Indians in particular, Mescalero Apaches led by Victorio, presumably left a fortune in coin and jewelry stolen from the victims of their raids. Coin and jewelry aside, the gold bars have been documented by dozens of witnesses some of whom signed affidavits attesting to this fact. Some were family members of Nos who worked to remove some of the gold bars. Others were witnesses who assisted in removing a small portion of the gold bars from the mountain. Others included Air Force officers who found a separate entrance to the mountain and a different room also filled with gold bars. One of these men scratched his initials on one of the bars to claim their find so they could guarantee themselves legal rights to the pile if and when they were allowed to come back and claim it. Experts have estimated the value of the gold alone at somewhere between 30 and $60 billion, making the treasure of Victorio Peak the largest treasure ever found in North America. Others have said, Where's the proof? Show me a gold bar. Doc Noss and Ova discovered the gold in 1930, but it was extremely difficult to remove the gold bars in any quantity due to the difficult narrow passageways and steep climbs back to the surface from the myriad of passageways within that mountain. Doc Noss tried to dynamite the opening to the surface in 1931, but the attempt backfired, closing the hole forever. They managed to get around 350 gold bars out, as well as some coin and jewelry, but the bulk of the fortune was still lying deep within the mountain. He and Ova said that they did file a claim on the mine, and on the treasure trove soon after. But their marriage fell apart, and Doc was shot and killed by a business partner and investor named Ryan, who demanded that Noss return his investment, which Noss refused, wanting instead to continue to excavate an entry to the stash. Others say that the Nosses never filed a legal claim. Meanwhile, the U.S. government, which had appropriated a large section of land surrounding Umbrio Basin for its top-secret missile base called White Sands Missile Range, eventually claimed Victorio Peak to be a part of White Sands Missile Range, and eventually booted the NOS excavators off the property. I say eventually because that part of the Umbrio Basin was basically open and accessible for years. For instance, there's a sheep ranch at the base of Victorio Peak, which the Army pays a lease to include. Hunters come to the basin and the peak. Treasure hunters used to flock to the peak once the rumor of gold started to leak out. 
The U.S. Army, in fact, was besieged with a request for permission to dig in and around Victoria Peak for treasure, all the while continually denying that they were digging themselves. By the 1960s, trying to police Victoria Peak was nearly impossible, and we'll expand on that story as we go forward. After Doc Noss was shot and killed in 1949, his former wife Ova, now a widow, tried every way she could to petition the U.S. government for a fair hearing, but they ignored her. When she heard that military officers had been found trying to excavate a tunnel into the mountain, she sent her team in to check on that, and they found that, yes, indeed, there were military personnel jumping her claim, but they weren't connected to White Sands. They were Air Force. All the while, the military was stonewalling her attorney's request and denying that any digging was going on, while it obviously was. Which brings us to part two of our story. The questions that beg to be answered here are, one, did the U.S. government or members of the CIA or the U.S. military, acting with or without the knowledge of U.S. government authority, participate in an active grab of the treasure at Victoria Peak? Two, did the U.S. military participate in an active cover-up? Three, was the treasure stolen from the mountain, and if so, who took it? Number four, how many murders have been associated with the treasure? Five, what is the status of the lawsuits today? And six, how high did this scandal go? Who knew, and what did they know? What is to follow is a curious mixture of facts and hearsay, so you can take it all with a grain of salt. But as all of us well known, where there is smoke, there is usually fire. A good place to start is 1961, October 28th to be exact the day that four men representing Oba Ness were sent to Victoria Peak, and they discovered a group of eight military personnel there digging, four U.S. Air Force officers, and four U.S. Army enlisted men. The officers ordered the Noss party away, explaining they were trespassing illegally on government property. Oba Noss, upon hearing this, fired off a letter to Colonel Morton Jaffe, the judge advocate at White Sands, and he denied that the Army was doing any excavation at the site, basically calling her a liar. It wouldn't have mattered if they'd taken pictures because there was no way the military was going to allow Ova to take them to court. Ovanas didn't know it, but there had been many military personnel sniffing around the mountain for the past few years. Word had gotten out that there was a treasure deep within the bowels of Victoria Peak, and efforts to find it were increasing. In 1958, an Air Force captain named Fige, along with three companions, was exploring the peak looking for a way in, when he discovered a natural opening on the opposite side of the peak from Noss's entrance. The four men had done extensive research on Victoria Peak, poring over old documents and records, and even traveling south to Mexico to research stories about Father LaRue. Fage and his companions, Thomas Burlett, Ken Prather, and Milladge Wessel, were all stationed at nearby Holloman Air Force Base, not at White Sands. The four men explored all around the mountain, got lucky, found a natural opening, and walked down a passageway into the peak for about 150 feet, at which point they were blocked by a huge boulder. They dug underneath it, and Burlett and Fees were able to climb under it, and soon they found themselves in a small cavern about 8 feet wide by 10 feet long. In that room, they found two large stacks of gold bars, each roughly 6 feet high, 3 feet wide, and 8 feet long. A third stack, shaped like a pyramid, stood about three feet high. 
This was on the opposite side of the peak from Noss's now collapsed shaft, and it begins to illustrate that the inside of the peak was honeycombed with caverns and fissures, and that LaRue had stashed his gold bars in more caverns than one, no doubt fearing that sooner or later someone would come to take it. The room had been undisturbed for so long that the dust lay several inches thick. Their movement into the room stirred up clouds of it so thick that it became difficult to breathe. Nearly choking, the two men marked their claim by scratching both on the wall and on one of the bricks, and then made their exit, but not before, we can only assume, grabbing as many bars as they could carry. At forty pounds each, it couldn't have been too many, plus they had to divide them up with the two men waiting on the other side of the boulder. They knew well that keeping any gold for themselves was illegal according to both state and federal laws at the time, without a permit. Before leaving, one of the men observed an old wooden cross on one of the walls, which they later attributed to the likelihood that Spaniards had been responsible for placing the gold bars there. It bears mentioning here that Ovanas also took a picture of some of the gold bars she and her husband had found, one bar showing the name La Rue, L-A capital R-U-E, on it. In September of 1961, Burlett and Fees swore to the specifics of their find in detailed affidavits provided to federal officials. They were also given and passed lie detector tests. They were given the rights to work Noss's claim by the federal government, which did not show any record of a claim made by the Nosses. It is very possible that federal government and state were not working on the same page with regard to that. It was in the 1960s that some people in high places within the U.S. military heard about the treasure of Victoria Peak and started looking. Others were catching on as well. Lynn Porter, a businessman from San Diego, California, had a friend named Clarence McDonald, who was a civilian security guard at White Sands Missile Range. Lynn Porter, his friend, and McDonald had been on a hunting trip when McDonald, after a few cans of beer, let loose that he knew of rumors of a hidden treasure inside Victoria Peak. On September 1, 1968, Porter and his friend, with McDonald leading them, drove to the peak and found a passage that led in, but it was too narrow for the bulky Porter to navigate, so the other two entered. After an hour, they came out, carrying, as their story goes, one gold bar, measuring two and a half inches wide by seven inches long, or so the story goes. Other people who went on record saying that they removed a single bar from the pile and then took it to the proper authorities are obviously covering their actions. It's highly likely they took all they could carry, and as often as they could. But turning in a single bar to the authorities had the purpose of placing them on the right side of the law and was intended to support their request to explore at the site. Porter's friend stated that a stack of gold bars nearly 200 yards long was lining the wall of the cavern they had found which makes it sound a lot like the cavern that Noss had discovered. As Porter's testimony went, the three men discussed it and finally decided that Porter should take the bar to a close friend of his who worked in the provost marshal's office in nearby Fort Bliss, Texas. Possession of gold was against the law at the time in the 60s. It wasn't until three years after President Nixon overturned the Gold Act, that being 1974, that it became legal again. Since possession of gold was illegal, the three men reasoned that the gold bar they turned in would provide evidence to bring about an authorized, legal expedition to remove the vast quantity of gold from the mountain cavern. The men believed that Porter's friend, who was an army major, was in a good position to help arrange just that. 
The Major accepted the bar and told Porter to check back with him in a few days. Porter did check back in three days and was shocked to find that his friend at the Major had been suddenly transferred to the Pentagon. His wife and school-aged children had packed up and left with him, all within a matter of 72 hours. The gold bar had disappeared without a trace, and no one in the Provost Marshal's office knew a thing about it and Porter was warned by the provost marshal that any future trespassing would be dealt with severely. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our show. Apparently, news of Porter's gold bar had reached a high-level CIA officer, and the CIA and White Sands Missile Range were closely connected, as the CIA was present at all the top-secret bases in Nevada and New Mexico. And for any of you who are curious about the real CIA goings-ons at Area 51 in Nevada, get Annie Jacobson's book, Area 51, An Uncensored History of America's Top Secret Military Base. It's an eye-opener as to the power and privilege given to the CIA in the days before their crimes, crimes such as MKUltra, the CIA's illegal LSD program, which spawned the LSD drug craze of the 60s and 70s. It also came before the U.S. Senate's public spotlight, after which many heads rolled. And while I'm recommending books, The Incredible Story of the Classified CIA Drug Program, MKUltra, in which hundreds of subjects were experimented upon with LSD outside of their knowledge, and whole drug cultures were started as CIA projects in areas like Haight-Asbury, under the direction of that agency. That story is documented and told well by Stephen Kinzer in the book Poisoner-in-Chief, which came out fairly recently. It was a big scandal for the CIA when the truth finally came to light. Back to our story. Again referring to the well-documented and well-researched Freedom Magazine article by Thomas Whittle, titled, The Mystery of the $30 Billion Treasure. There were definitely large removals of the Victoria Peak gold by unknown high-echelon government persons or agencies in the 1960s, as well as an active effort by the CIA and the U.S. Army which ran White Sands Missile Base, to keep mouths shut. Some examples provided? A retired Army sergeant named Chester Stout traced the removal of two large truckloads of gold from Victoria Peak, but later had to move out of New Mexico after his life was threatened because he knew too much. A prospector named Harvey Snow, who spent time in the mountains around Victoria Peak searching for gold, said that the military caught up with him and tried to scare him off, by telling him that they had all five of his children tracked and knew where to find them. Snow ignored the advice, which most likely came, he said, from a CIA operative. His daughter soon ended up dead from a gunshot wound under very mysterious circumstances. Sam Scott, a retired airline pilot who became interested in hunting for treasure around the peak, was warned in 1977 to keep clear of Victoria Peak or his home would be firebombed and his wife and daughter killed. The man who relayed this threat to Scott said that two CIA agents had asked him to deliver the message. Thayer Snipes of El Paso, Texas, swore to an affidavit regarding another death, that in the latter part of 1972, he had stopped at the airport Chevron station at the corner of Airway Boulevard and Montana Avenue in El Paso, Texas, to visit with a friend named Frank Foss, and that while visiting with Foss, a man they both knew named E.M. Guthrie, the husband of Letha Guthrie, the stepdaughter of Milton Ernest Doc Noss, drove into the station in a late-model Ford T-Bird. Snipes knew that Guthrie had an active interest in the Victoria Peak gold and Ovinoss's claim. 
He invited Guthrie to dinner, but Guthrie refused, acting very nervous and agitated, and admitting that he was, quote, running for his life. He added that the mob was after him. Snipe said that three weeks later, Foss told him that Guthrie had called him and said that he was in Central America. And about a month after that, Snipes heard that Guthrie had been beaten to death in California. And indeed he had. His body had been placed in his car, doused with gasoline, and set aflame. A second source confirmed Guthrie's death, and that source said he had hired a team of 30 investigators to dig into Guthrie's death and those of 30 others connected with the massive cover-up of the removal of gold from Victorio Peak. Keep in mind that the gold taken had to amount to hundreds of millions of dollars worth, if not billions, and whoever took it could afford to pay people who could suppress information through whatever means possible. As to who took it, when and how, no one knows. Possession of gold bullion by private American citizens was illegal under federal law throughout the period of the Johnson presidency and through the Nixon presidency until January 1, 1975. Earlier I had said 1974, but it became effective January 1, 1975, when the restrictions on owning gold were finally lifted. In addition, Victorio Peak lay on land owned by the state of New Mexico, and removal of gold without permission of that state was in violation of New Mexico law. Bill Shriver, an international dealer in precious metals who had proved very valuable to independent investigation of this scandal, was murdered. He was beaten up so badly in California that he died from his injuries. Before his death, Shriver told the writer of Freedom magazine that he had a copy of a transcribed order from Lyndon Johnson describing in detail how the then-president wanted a military escort to handle the supply of gold taken out of Victoria Peak to his 110,000-acre ranch in Chihuahua, Mexico. Shriver said that he had copies of other presidential messages, several initialed by LBJ, dealing with the clandestine, illegal removal of gold from the peak. I know what you're thinking, it's just circumstantial evidence, another he-said-she-said story. And well it might be. Some other victims. Edward Atkins of Decatur, Illinois had been a claimant to the peak gold and was vigorously pursuing that claim via attorney Daryl Holmes of Athens, Georgia, when Holmes died of mysterious circumstances, supposedly a heart attack, while he was returning to Illinois from El Paso, where he was attending to a matter involving that claim. At least one close relative was convinced that Atkins' death was not accidental. According to Atkins' son John, Holmes possessed key materials which were being used to press the army into allowing Atkins and Holmes to access the peak. These materials, including tape-recorded sessions wherein Lyndon Baines Johnson, then an ex-U.S. president, discussed the disposition of some of the gold bars known to be on his ranch. These materials disappeared from Holmes' office at the time of his death in February 1977. Freedom Magazine, in their article, openly admitted that Lyndon Johnson's name loomed large in the information that their investigation uncovered, and that was a five-year investigation with a number of sources claiming that the president was instrumental during his term in the planning and execution of the removal of the gold from Victoria Peak. Terry Delonis, a Nas heir, in 2000, furnished the author of the Gold House Trilogy, John Clarence, with further information and signed affidavits, swearing that both President Johnson and President Richard Nixon were involved. Here are some of the accusations included in that sworn affidavit. First, an affidavit that John Clarence received from Jim McKee, a gold investor in Delaware, 
McKee said that he was approached in 1989 by representatives of a Texas man named Billy Carr, who had purportedly been a friend of LBJ's. McKee was told that Carr was working with the Johnson family to unload six million ounces of gold that was, quote, part of a treasure removed by the U.S. Army from Victoria Peak, and that it was, quote, located in underground bunkers somewhere on the Johnson Ranch, end quote. McKee and Delonis started negotiating with Carr, who said he was willing to sell the gold to the Nas family well below market value. The Johnsons couldn't sell the gold on the open market because they had no legitimate providence. The Nasses, on the other hand, assuming their claim was valid, did. The gold was to be shipped to Canada, resmelted, refined, and sold there. And that's how the car story went. Whether Carr was really working for the Johnsons hasn't been proven, and McKee never saw the gold. McKee and Delonis negotiated with Carr from 1989 to 1993, and when Carr died, they continued negotiating with his partners until 1998. Attorneys and CPAs in the U.S. and Canada were involved. McKee's attorney even put up $70,000 at one point to fund an initial shipment of the gold, but the deal fell through and the $70,000 was returned. Some people have said that that had all the earmarks of a scam. However, nine years is a long time for a scam, and when the deal fell through, the money, all of it, was returned. No foul, no harm. The Nixon connection begins with a memo from top Nixon aide John Ehrlichman in 1970, while he was with Nixon in San Clemente. He wrote, I was called upon by Keith Alexander, who claims to have secret knowledge of 742 bars of gold weighing 40 pounds each. Alexander was seeking legal rights to it. Connection continues, Alexander's name turns up in a 1975 book about Victoria Peak. In that book, attorney F. Lee Bailey, who represented 50 claimants to the gold, said Alexander and another man, Fred Drolty, had told him about the treasure. Drolty's name turned up in an interview that author Clarence conducted in 2004 with a man named Richard Moyle, who was also a gold hunter. Moyle said he had worked for Drolty. Drolty had reportedly told Moyle that he'd been in contact with Richard Nixon about removing some gold, that he got a key to the back gate of the missile range, which was authorized by Nixon and that the theft occurred over Thanksgiving weekend of 1973. An FBI report does substantiate that someone had gotten access that weekend and used dynamite on Victoria Peak. It's a strange tale, but it does link two presidents. And a presidential side note, Ova Noss herself in the 1960s had managed to contact President John F. Kennedy regarding her situation, and he had gotten back to her. They were scheduled to meet, but he was assassinated before they could meet. That may have been how LBJ found out about her situation. He would have had access to meetings of importance that Kennedy had scheduled or noted. Back to the Freedom Magazine findings. A retired White Sands Missile Range security guard residing in El Paso indicated that he observed Johnson and former Texas Governor John Connolly spending about 10 days in the desolate area around Victoria Peak in the late 60s. According to that same security guard, Johnson and Connolly headed a team which brought in sophisticated excavation equipment to remove gold from the peak. The most modern I've ever seen, said the guard. They even brought in their own security detail. Another retired U.S. Army officer said that while on duty at the Provost Marshal's office on White Sands Missile Range during the period of Johnson's presidency, 
he was visited by four men in a late-model Cadillac Fleetwood who sought permission to drive to the peak. One man, a Mr. Moon, said that he was from the White House Secret Service detail and showed that officer a green laminated card that said Secret Service, Division of the White House. Another man, an engineer named Dick Richardson, told the officer that he was a boyhood friend of LBJ's and that he had personally counted 18,888 gold bars in one stack in a cavern at Victoria Peak, each one weighing about 60 pounds. More sources verified the movement of the gold from Johnson's Ranch in Chihuahua to Vancouver, British Columbia, by a B-24, moving up to 20 tons per load. Other sources confirmed that in the 60s and 70s, Victoria Peak was just like a private vault for certain high-ranking people. A number of sources also named Major General John F. Schinkel, the commander of White Sands Missile Range, from 1960 to 1962, as knowing about the movement of gold from the peak in the early 60s, but he adamantly denied any knowledge or any involvement. During Schinkel's term at White Sands, Ovanoss's lawyers, according to the article, had been lobbying the New Mexico state capitol in an effort to force the U.S. government from doing any more excavation at Victoria Peak. During these negotiations, it was discovered that the acting director of the Denver Mint had obtained a permit from Holloman Air Force Base to dig for the Nas treasure. It also became clear that Judge Advocate Jaffe had been aware all along of the digging going on at the peak, but only chose to tell Ovanas that the Army wasn't doing it themselves. Privately, it was either the Army or the CIA or the state of New Mexico that went right ahead and paid the Gaddis Mining Company $100,000 to search for the treasure between July 13th and September 7th, 1962, and that's well documented. They dynamited around the clock and removed thousands of tons of rock from the side of the mountain, but according to reports, they did not find the treasure room found by Doc Noss. They may well have found both it and other catches within the mountain, but many people swore that the real thievery occurred in the late 60s and 70s, so it's possible that that U.S. Army or CIA or state-funded operation didn't yield much from our tax money, which is how both organizations are funded. Gaddis Mining probably came out as the only winner. In 1972, noted attorney F. Lee Bailey was brought into the Victoria Peak matter. His partners were U.S. Attorney John Mitchell and soon-to-be Watergate figure John Ehrlichman. Bailey represented 50 clients who, quote, knew the location of the cave with 50 tons of gold stacked within. End quote. They had all retained Bailey to find a legal way that they could get to that gold. Strangely enough, Ovanas, who had the only legal rights to it, some say, wasn't a part of that lawsuit. On March 5, 1975, a federal judge ruled that the U.S. Army was allowed to prohibit entry to Embryo Basin, but that sometime in the future should try to make arrangements with the 50 claimants so that they could search for the gold. On June 2, 1973, Jack Anderson, a famous columnist at the time, reported in his syndicated column the story of F. Lee Bailey's involvement with the gold bars in New Mexico and specifically White Sands Missile Range. According to Anderson, Bailey was authorized by a consortium to gain legal possession of the treasure at White Sands Missile Range. And this information is, according to a blog set up, by White Sands Missile Range, which documents this entire story. The group agreed to pay taxes and then provide profits equally among themselves. Bailey was skeptical at first and asked for proof. The group came up with a gold bar about four inches long and promised hundreds more bigger ones to prove their claim. 
the bar proved to be 60% gold and 40% copper. Anderson's article quickly pointed out that ancient gold ingots were often not pure, and that this percentage was not considered significant enough to cast any doubt upon the authenticity. A Bailey spokesperson said the consortium knew the location of 292 gold bars, each weighing about 80 pounds. However, both the U.S. Treasury and the Army expressed disinterest in Bailey's proposal. The question remaining is, why did the group present a 4-inch bar rather than one of the 292 gold bars weighing 80 pounds each? An 80-pound bar would have to be much larger than 4 inches. Maybe it was a one-off from the pile, and the group didn't want to risk giving up a bar which would have been worth a fortune. Or, more likely, the group melted down a big bar into the smaller one. The fact that it was 40% copper does fit the narrative that it was an original and not a recently made bar. And if you're wondering why there aren't more pictures and proof, keep in mind that it was illegal all this time to own gold bullion. F. Lee Bailey then took his problems to U.S. Attorney General John Mitchell. Mitchell then repeated much of it at lunch with H.R. Haldeman and John Dean. Finally, John Dean, during his Senate Watergate testimony, mentioned something about F. Lee Bailey, gold bars in New Mexico, and making a deal with his client to avoid prosecution for holding gold. All on the public record. In 1973, several people did steal into the Umbrio Basin and set off a dynamite charge in a side canyon east of Victoria Peak. They supposedly blasted ancient Indian pictographs off a rock wall in the process. After this, security was beefed up and a trailer was installed near the peak to provide a place for round-the-clock security. By 1974, Victoria Peak was in the news all the time, and there was lots of maneuvering by various groups to gain access to the peak. The Bailey Group signed a deal with the state of New Mexico, guaranteeing the state 25% of whatever was taken out. The Army didn't buy into the deal, however. No one was getting preference or first crack at the mountain, according to the Army. Yes, at some point there would be a search, but not yet. Pressure now was mounting to remove the gold. Gold fever was rampant, and letters to White Sands were coming in from all over the world with requests for permission to search. The largest single removal of gold came in 1976, according to the precious metals expert Bill Schreiber who kept his ear to the ground with regard to large movements of gold and other metals, but it could only be done by someone or some organization that held sway over the U.S. Army. Or so the story goes. They, meaning whoever held that sway, swiped it between 1974 and 1977. By 77, they'd pretty well drained Victoria Peak of all its gold, after which, in a magnanimous gesture by the Army at White Sands, the news media and investigators and claimants were invited to a two-week search around the peak for any sign of gold. This was called Operation Gold Finder. Someone at White Sands certainly had a sense of humor giving it this title, as there was probably nothing left to be found. And what a media barrage! The New York Times, The Washington Post, London Daily Mail, Newsweek, Time Magazine, Rolling Stone, and the National Enquirer were all there, along with local and regional print media. The TV and radio stations showed up in force as well. Dan Rather with 60 Minutes was there, signing autographs. By now, Ova Noss was 81 years old and still hadn't seen any fortune come her way, nor would she, but the family would keep the battle going. Her grandson, Terry Delonis, whose name we mentioned earlier in this story, would assume the mantle of responsibility for the fight to their rights to the treasure 
through the OVA-NAS Family Partnership. The Army agreed to recognize six claimant groups and give them time between missile testing, so they said, to knock themselves out. During the search, ground radar readings did indicate the presence of a huge cavern inside the mountain, and about 400 feet of dirt and rock blocking NASA's original passage. Two weeks of breathless reporting. Reporters everywhere. People with shovels, drills, excavators, radar and sonar units. No one got inside. Nothing, therefore, came out. It was a flop. Wouldn't have mattered, insiders and conspiracy theorists say. It had been stripped clean anyway. As the media and F. Lee Bailey's claimants left the other side of the mountain in disgust after two weeks of digging and radar testing, someone at LBJ's ranch must have been chuckling if any part of that theory is true. Bill Schreiber, the expert dealer of precious metals who died under mysterious circumstances, estimated that the total amount of gold removed from Victoria Peak at 25 million troy ounces, of which 10 million came out in 1976, was $39 billion. The gold, he said, was removed and smelted into new 50-pound bars with no marks on them which could signify their origin. The gold was then shipped to Switzerland and sold in a new form in Zurich. The buying entity was a Middle Eastern principal, said Schreiber. The actual movement was done by a military aircraft. The value is estimated at $31 billion. Now, a lot of people do not believe that LBJ kept the gold bullion. That instead, he facilitated the heist and returned whatever money the gold bullion sold for to the U.S. Treasury and probably the state of New Mexico. But no one knows for sure. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our show. Army spokespersons have repeatedly denied that there ever was a treasure in Victoria Peak. And they keep up high security today to keep the treasure hunters away. Terry Delonis and his organization kept up the fight to stick with their claim. And surprisingly, the Army finally capitulated, 12 years after Operation Goldfinder, and probably, and probably when they were sure that not a single speck of treasure remained. The Noss family partnership was firm in their belief that there could well have been undiscovered caverns and side rooms that the mountain thieves had not found. So the Army formed the Victorio Peak Project, which began in January of 1990, with a survey of the environmental and engineering aspects of the mountain. Ground sonar was used to identify caverns that NOS had found and that had been identified by tests in the 1960s. That mining effort began in July of 1992. Metal detectors were used around the mountain base to try and locate Doc NOS's stashes. Some Indian artifacts were found, but no treasure. Witnesses who had claimed to have seen the treasure years ago were pulled in in an attempt to assist in finding access points on the mountain. They drilled boreholes and made a major effort to break into the apparent massive underground cave, but had to stop while only 50 feet from the cave wall due to unstable rock. In 1996, they did break into a huge room 60 feet high and 6 feet wide, but it was unstable and collapsed, showering several miners with rocks and human bones. They closed down the operation after that day, and it hasn't been excavated since. In the years since, skeptics have said that the whole thing was a hoax. They said that Doc Noss dreamed the whole thing up as a scam. One story surmises that Doc was told the cave's location when he was in jail for a time, and the story of how he discovered the hole during a hunting trip was just a cover to build his story. Another, as told in the book 100 Tons of Gold, states that Noss was a professional con man 
having faked being a foot doctor as well as an astrologer before coming up with a gold scheme. They go on to state that he actually found the treasure from a catch in a nearby mountain range and then transplanted it to Victoria Peak so he could claim it for himself. Another story says that one of the men who purchased a bar from Doc Noss in the late 30s said that it contained only one two-hundredth of the value of the gold he had paid for, and that might well have been true. Some investigators surmised that Doc Noss had electroplated copper bars with gold in El Paso as fakes. That was answered by others who said that local law enforcement was always pulling Noss, who was known to drink and drive, over, causing a few nights for him in a clinker, with hopes that they could confiscate one of his bars. So he had fakes made for just that purpose. Our opinion is that definitely at least a portion of this story is true, considering the witnesses were willing to sign affidavit as to the finding of, the size, the contents, and the scope, and the location of the gold bars, that they helped remove them, that they helped hide them, that some, namely Air Force and Army personnel, found separate catches of the gold themselves, that professional dealers in gold knew where large quantities were popping up for sale, and when, and could tie that in with names. There very likely was a fortune in gold bullion in Victoria Peak. Why Padre LaRue would mine so much, and smelt so much, and then hide it away, is unfathomable. If half the stories are true, he could have bought a country with it. One final note. Author W.C. Jameson uncovered a very interesting story regarding Noss's finding of the treasure in gold bars. A local named Willie Doubtit claimed that he had discovered 1,400 gold bars catched in a cave along with an old smelter in the nearby Caballo Mountains just a few years prior to Noss's find. The Caballo Mountains are 30 miles away from Victoria Peak. Doubtit claimed that he had brought one of the bars to town and bragged about finding it and before long he was kidnapped, tortured, and forced to give up the details about where he had found the bars. He said his assailants included two county deputies. Because the gold had been found on private land, the new owners of the gold bars, whoever they were, had to stash it somewhere where they could find it legally, so to speak, so they took it to Victoria Peak, knowing of old ancient caverns there. Through a strange series of events, Doc Noss ended up finding it. You can bet there's nothing left inside the mountain today unless there are a few more rooms that were not found. And that is entirely possible. But there's always those bars that Doc Noss and his cowboy amigo Tom Jolly hid the night before Doc was shot and killed. He never forgot those bars of gold he helped Noss bury back in 1949. In 1961, he returned to the New Mexico desert and found 10 of those bars. When all the smoke cleared, he said, I had $66,000. Fake treasure indeed. The White Sands Missile Range and surrounding desert halfway between the town of Truther Consequences and Alamogorda hasn't changed much all these years. The roads leading to the Umbrio Basin are all blocked with locked steel gates and the military patrols it all on a regular basis. Rumors of a treasure hidden within the bowels of the mountain still exist out there. Somewhere out there, a few dozen people are, are probably living very well thanks to the value of the gold, coin, and jewels stolen from Doc Noss's claim. But they're not talking. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast for this interesting little bit of history. We appreciate your sharing our show with others, and we appreciate your reviews, and here are a few recent reviews for you. The first one, five stars. Fascinating history. One of the best historical podcasts. 
interesting, unique subjects. Down from JNob57, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars. Just the facts, ma'am. I love the way you can hear his enthusiasm for the subject through the airways. Still, he presents the facts straightforward as they happen. If he has an opinion, he'll state it as such, which allows you to take that part or leave it. As for the review that didn't like any ads, that one from Vish E.B. Atto, Apple Podcast U.S. And this one, educational and entertaining, five stars, fascinating topics with just enough detail. More, please. That one from Jennifer Sanders, Apple Podcast U.S. And this one, Super Stories to Educate and Entertain, five stars. This is one of the best podcasts I've listened to. It's very entertaining and informative. Be sure to check out his other podcast, 1001 Classic Short Stories. It, too, will entertain you. Still trying to catch up, enjoying every minute. That one from E1L on Apple Podcast U.S. And this one, Panning for Gold, five stars. This podcast covers history as well as any I've heard. Interesting topics, well-told and well-researched. I'm a history teacher, and every episode has several golden nuggets that I will add to the appropriate lectures. History is very interesting when properly told. Great job. That one from Pistol Pete 92, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars. This is so good, I love all the stories. That one from David Linker, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, fantastic, five stars. Just listened to all three of the Battle of the Little Bighorn episodes and thoroughly enjoyed them. It's apparent the host has a great grasp of the material, and he knows how to relate it in a compelling way. Well done. That one from Urban Moving, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all so very much for these reviews. Greatly appreciated. Any day now, we should be hearing from Apple Podcast that our brand new podcast, 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre, has been approved and it's out there. Google Play did get back with us and told, and told us it's been approved. For anyone who wants to listen to the now three new ghost stories we have on there, you can go to our website at 1001storiespodcast.com and you can catch those stories. That's where we house everything that we do on one website. That's our host website. It's 1001storiespodcast.com. You can also reach it at 1001storiesnetwork.com. Last time I checked. Thank you all so very much for listening and joining us. We'll see you next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a brand new episode. Oh, one more note. At 1001 Stories for the Road, we just started the Sherlock Holmes mystery, A Study in Scarlet, which was one of the four novels that Arthur Conan Doyle wrote on Sherlock Holmes. It was actually the first Sherlock Holmes story. It's a terrific mystery, and I think you'll enjoy it very much. So that's 1001 Stories for the Road. Everyone stay safe, and we'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern.